Okay, good morning. It's good to be in the house of God this morning to worship Him and to hear His Word preached. Uh, this will be my last Sunday with you guys for a while, so I'd like to get back to the Isle of Patmos today. We haven't been there since February of 2013, but I'm hoping we can get there and then, uh, Lord willing, we'll finish this thing up uh, after the next leg. So, um, turn, uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible. Last week, we got through verse 3. There's three parts to verse 3. We got to, through two parts. And here we're talking about the internal civic affairs of the future home of the believer the New Jerusalem, the external civic affairs, those things that flow outward, the tree of life and the river of life. Uh, and then following that, we have a description of some internal things that are directed inward. We talked about no more curse, idyllic society that will be found within those city limits during the millennial reign of Christ, a foretaste of what will flow into all of creation in the new heavens and the new earth. And then we talked about the access, the direct access to God's throne there, not in the heavens, but in the new Jerusalem. I couldn't help but be reminded of that this morning. Now, I had this thing here. In the old hymn we sang, I picked up a song sheet. Uh, that was on the floor, and it's got looks like blood all over it. So I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> that old song, and can it be uh, in 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 the last verse there? This statement was made: "Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own." We have bold access to the throne of God now in the Spirit through prayer. The question is: Do we enter that throne room boldly? <clears throat> Or do we enter it hesitantly? Hebrews said that because of Christ and His work and His, His role as a high priest that lives ever to make intercession for His saints, let us enter the throne room boldly to find grace and help in time of need. So what we can do in the spiritual now through prayer, one day we can do in the literal, in the physical, by walking right in there. So those are kind of amazing things to think about. Idyllic society, access, and then finally, the final element of these internal civic affairs we barely touched on is what I called permanent livelihood or guaranteed livelihood. There's all this talk about a guaranteed income and a guaranteed this because people in today's society are so comfortable and they're so wed to their, rea- their routines and their creature comforts that they can't imagine not being guaranteed something. If they're not guaranteed something, they freak out. The thoughts of losing a job. What will we do? No thoughts about God and His watch care and that He owns everything, that all the beasts of the forest are His, that the land is His. No thoughts of that, but oh my goodness, I I can't lose my job. And therefore, I'll give up all kinds of precious things just to keep a job that's not secure anyway. But one day we'll have guaranteed employment, a guaranteed livelihood for all of eternity. It says that here very simply at the end of verse 3, and his servants shall serve him. 
That's guaranteed livelihood. That's a livelihood I'd like to have. The psalmist spoke about serving God as a doorkeeper in his temple to be more preferable than dwelling lavishly in the tents of the wicked. We ought to be content to be a doorkeeper in God's house to serve Him in His city than to dwell in this giant big circus tent of wickedness that is this country of ours. But I want to elaborate a little more on this guaranteed livelihood. Uh, His servant shall serve Him. Notice at the end of verse 3 there's a colon. And so what follows in verses 4 and 5, excuse me, explains what that means. What does it mean that His servants shall serve Him? Do we have a brutal taskmaster? Or will we serve Him as a king, a loving and benevolent king? Well, that colon indicates that what follows explains what that means. And so I want to go through verses 4 and 5 today. This is all about the guaranteed livelihood of the internal civic affairs of the new Jerusalem, capsuled within this detailed blueprint that we get. God gives us a detailed blueprint of our future home, and we'd, be, we'd do well to study it just like when you buy a car. You know, that you have that sticker on the window, and it's got all that information on there. You want to study that blueprint. Know what you're getting. Know what you're not getting. And if you don't pay attention, you might drive something off the lot and get home and notice that something you needed isn't there. Or now you're stuck with something you didn't want. So God gives us these blueprints, and, and that's why we've been spending a little time here. It's a detailed blueprint, so we've studied it in detail. But let's finish that up today. <laughs> And his servant shall serve him. Then verse 4, this is what that means. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. This is exactly what was promised to the remnant in Revelation 3, verse 12, to the remnant at Philadelphia. The brethren at Philadelphia who had a little strength, but they kept God's word and did not deny His name. And God promised them that they would one day serve Him. Pillars in the temple of God, having a name written in their foreheads. It's over in Revelation 3, 12. This thing that is promised is revealed here. And then it said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This is to all of us. Those that keep His word, we shall one day serve Him. I mentioned last week, in light of what no more curse and the mountain of the Lord's house, Isaiah 11 looks like lambs and lions laying down together, wolves and sheep and kids playing with snakes and spiders. It's almost like it's one great big giant international park and our God's servants will be those park rangers that administer it. That administer it. Verse 4a, and they shall see His face. What does it mean to serve God? Guaranteed livelihood. It means to see His face. That's a small little statement there, but it's a very profound and powerful proclamation. 
Turn to Exodus chapter 33. In light of a couple of passages from Exodus, this is a profound proclamation. And they shall see His face. Whose face? God's face. The Lamb's face. They are one and the same. Exodus 33, verse 23. Actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. Moses has asked God... To show himself. (coughs) And God said, I'm going to do what you request. And then if you get down to verse 20, God says to him, Thou canst not see my face. I'm going to pass by you, but you can't see my face. For there shall no man see me and live. No man can see God's face and live, we're told here. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me. Thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses saw the backside of God hidden there in the cleft of the rock. That's where that old hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, comes from. But God said, you can't see my face. You can't see my face and live. Turn back even before that. This was after something else had happened. That wasn't the first time Moses saw part of God. Is Exodus chapter 24 Verse 9, this is after the, blood of the book of the law is sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. We're told, then went up Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, those are the two sons of Moses, I mean of Aaron that later offer strange fire to God and are burned up. But Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel, they went up, they went up to the mountain, look at verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw Him. They saw God. And there was under His feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in His clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel He laid not His hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. So the elders of Israel went up and saw God. They saw His feet. They saw His feet. They didn't see His face. They saw His feet, and in His presence, they were able to eat and drink. Now, these realities there in the book of Exodus make what is said here in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, profound. Because no man could see God's face and live, and yet here they shall see His face. They shall see His face. And just like those elders of Israel that could eat and drink in His presence at His feet, we'll be able to eat and drink in His presence face to face. And they shall see His face. One day we will see God's face and we shall live. The wicked won't. 
At the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, there was one who sat upon the throne and even the heaven and the earth fled from his face. The wicked won't see the face of God. But we will. They shall see his face. Now this is a banquet throughout the millennium in the new Jerusalem. A banquet that extends all the way into the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. It's a banquet of what a couple of people got to taste in the Old Testament. So Moses wasn't allowed to see God's face. The elder, but he saw his back parts. The elders of Israel saw his feet. And it's made clear, no man can see my face and live unless God enables him to live. There were a few that tasted this a little bit, this promise to the church. Turn to Judges chapter 6. These two, there may have been other occasions, but these two things came to mind. Judges chapter 6, verses 22 through 24. Look at verse 11, 1 Judges chapter 6. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under the oak, which is an Ophrah that pertained unto Joash, the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. So here we have the angel of the Lord appear to Gideon, who's minding his own business. His father worships idols and has an idol's altar there. And Gideon's minding his own business, threatening, threshing wheat. And the angel of the Lord appears to him. said, the Lord is with thee. If you go down to verse 22, And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built there an altar unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet an Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So here we see Gideon sees the angel of the Lord. He sees him face to face and he thinks he's going to die. And God says, don't worry, you're not going to die. And then Gideon calls the place Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. When it says they shall see his face, it means that the God of peace is there for His church. And though men should die when they see His face, they won't. A man won't die if God doesn't let him die. It, Gideon got a taste of that. What's coming for all eternity for the saints. Judges 13, he wasn't the only one. Here we see a husband whine a little bit with fear. We, we see a double-minded husband wavering a little bit, and then we see a wife that basically tells him to straighten up, rebukes him and exhorts him. That's a good thing. Gets his attention. Judges 13, I'm going to start with verse 15. Well, actually, uh, I'll start a little bit back in the, the, the beginning of the chapter. 
And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. So this was in the camp of the Danites that did not move north in disobedience to God like we see at the end of Judges. They went and got them their own little priest and their own little ephod moved up north and overtook a peaceful city and didn't conquer the land God told them to or appointed them to. But there was a remnant the camp of Dan that remained behind. And out of that, God appointed or made a promise concerning Samson who would arise and begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. When I think of Samson, I think about that old wicked building up in Washington called the United States Capitol. And I think about how I wish and often pray that God would raise up a Samson to deliver us, to begin to deliver us from that wicked bunch in Washington. That he'd go in there and put his hands on the pillars and bring that thing crashing down when all Republicans and all Democrats are gathered together with the president, the vice president, the whole Supreme Court. That's what I pray for. In fact, I made it known on January 6th on the grass of the U.S. Capitol that that's what we needed. And that old idiot FBI director this week up there fumbling all over his words, couldn't answer a question directly, said there were more than 300 people that they're still looking for that were at the Capitol that day. Well, here I am. I'm right here. Come and take me. I still wish and I still pray that Samson would raise up and put his hands on those pillars and bring it crashing down. And I'll say that with my hand on a Bible in a court of law. You're not going to get an apology out of this one for preaching God's judgment. You're not going to get blaming Trump or blaming somebody. We went up there to preach and that's what we did. And we're not going to apologize for it. Today, I still pray for that Samson to arise. But that would be a great work of God's mercy on this country. And we don't deserve His mercy as a country. We have it as believers and as the remnant, but the country doesn't deserve it. So that would be a great act of God's mercy to raise up a Samson like He did for Israel. He may, may not. But we still must remain faithful. But anyway, we go on down. This angel of the Lord appears to Samson's mother. And she runs to tell her husband. And uh, the husband wants to make sure this is real. And so uh, he comes out to find this angel of the Lord. And that's where we get down to uh, the latter part of the chapter. In verse 15, Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, I pray thee, let us detain thee until we shall have made ready a kid for thee. In other words, stay here, let's cook something for you. Just like Abraham did for those three angels. One of them was God when they went down to Sodom. And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Though thou detain me, I will not eat of thy bread. And if thou wilt offer a burnt offering, thou must offer it unto the Lord. For Manoah knew not that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? So here we have a hint that this is God. So Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock unto the Lord. And the angel did wondrously, and Manoah and his wife looked on. 
For it came to pass when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces to the ground. But the angel of the Lord did no more appear to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. That word Lord there in the Hebrew is Jehovah. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. He expected to die because they had seen God. But his wife said unto him, If the Lord were pleased to kill us, would he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at our hands. Neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would, as at this time, have told us such things. Things as these. So there we see the faith of a wife rebuking her husband. But they saw God. Not in all his glory, but they saw him and expected to die. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to move at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. That's down near the Gaza Strip. The same place where the Palestinians fired a bunch of rockets the last couple of days. You know, those, those fools over there fired some rockets. And one of them misfired and came down on a house and killed their own people. And they're still bl- they're blaming Israel for that one too. That's what they always do. That's where these things happened. But there were a couple there in the Old Testament, the day of the judges, that tasted... A little taste of what it was to see God face to face. Not in all His glory, not in all His splendor, but they didn't die. We will see His face and we will not die. That's a profound little promise there. A powerful proclamation. But let's also keep in mind what Jesus said to His disciples in John 14. They said, show us the Father. We want to see Him. I believe it was Philip that asked that or, or, or asked Jesus to do that. And in John chapter 14, he's like, I've been with you this long and you still don't understand. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, then show us the Father? In other words, Jesus said, You've seen me, you've seen the Father. But here in the New Jerusalem, we shall see Him not in the veil of His humanity, but in all His glory. If you think of God, the Father, think of the soul of God. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. The Spirit is the Spirit of God. We will see the soul of God face to face in all His glory. John got a taste of it right back there in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus Christ, not a weakling hanging on the cross, not meek and mild walking up and down the streets or hiding in a crevice somewhere, coming back as a homeless person. But in all His glory, eyes like a flame of fire, feet as frying brass, hair and head white like wool, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. 
We won't just see Him in that glory. We will see Him from day to day. We will serve Him face to face. He's not a boss man that's unapproachable. Not one who keeps his door closed and we wouldn't dare knock on the door. We serve Him and He's accessible face to face. You know, God keeps His promises Jesus keeps all His promises. Jesus made a lot of statements, a lot of promises when He spoke to the people. They're in the Gospels. We go to that Sermon on the Mount. Jesus giving the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Jesus keeps His promise. Right here, the pure in heart are those who see God. They shall see His face. Well, who are the pure in heart? Well, just as Revelation tells us or shows us a fulfillment of that promise, Revelation also defines for us the pure in heart. And we can go right back to the first chapter. The last chapter of the first chapter. What does John say in 1 verse 5? And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the one who made the promise on on the mount, who keeps it and fulfills it here, the faithful witness, And the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The pure in heart are those that have a new heart, that have been washed from their sins in his blood. Those are the pure in heart. Not the moralizers, not the virtue signalers, but those who have been washed in the blood of Christ. Those are the pure in heart. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And they shall see His face. That's profound. His servants shall serve Him. What does that mean? They'll see His face. They'll interact with Him. He's not a boss man or a CEO behind the desk. He's intimately involved with His people and His city and His rule. And his name shall be in their foreheads. Well, that's exactly what Christ told the church at Philadelphia. It's exactly what he told them. That his name would be in their foreheads. I don't know if that's a crown. I don't know if that's some kind of a badge. I don't know if it's an inscription or a tattoo. I don't know what it is. But his name will be in their foreheads. And it will be no doubt that they are his servants. High clearance access. Top clearance access. I'll go back to this verse written to the church at Philadelphia. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out, and I will write upon him the name of my God. This is Jesus talking. The Muslims love this verse because they, they sit here and they say, See, Jesus is speaking of God as someone else. The problem is they don't read to the end of the verse and they don't have the sense to see what's being said here. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall no more go out and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God which is New Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God and I will write upon him my new name. So in other words, the name of my God is also my new name. Jesus Christ is God. It's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. 
His name will be written in their foreheads. There'll be no denying our Savior as Peter did around that fire, as many of us have done throughout our lives. There'll be no denying anymore because His name will be written on our foreheads. We won't even be able to deny Him. We'll see His face and we won't even be able to deny Him. And then verse 5 This has already been stated in chapter 21, verse 23, but there's a subtle difference. In verse 23 of the previous chapter, it says, The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So the glory of God is the Lamb. The Lamb is God. And the glory of God lightens the city. So this has already been stated, and it's restated here in verse 5. When the Bible restates something, it's emphasizing something. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. In verse 23 of chapter 21, we're told that the glory of God and the Lamb is the light. Therefore, there's no need for the sun or the moon. I believe, like I've said, that that city is suspended above those heavenly bodies. And it's visible to all on the earth. It's the mountain of the Lord's house. Within that city, within that giant international park, there is no curse. (coughs) A foretaste of what will come for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll see that later that outside this city, down here on earth, are dogs, murderers, whoremongers, and sorcerers still on the earth at that time. There isn't any of that in the new heavens and the new earth. But this city is present in the millennium. And it doesn't have need of the candles or the sun or the moon. There's no night there because God lightens it, but He also gives His servants light. So here we're told, previously we're told He is the light, and here we're told He gives them light. I think about Moses when he came down off the mountain, his face shone, and they had to put a veil over it. So Moses didn't only see the light and dwell in the presence of the light, those 40 days and 40 nights, God gave him light. And so when he went out, the light went with him. So the very light that lightens this city will be given to us and as we come and go, it'll go with us. And it won't matter what's, whether it's light or dark, we'll be, we'll be a giant headlamp wherever we go to do our Lord's business. He gives us light. You know, they say Stephen, when he was being stoned, they took note. Paul was standing there. He gave consent Paul didn't throw any stones, but he was guilty of the murder of Stephen because he stood by and encouraged it. Just like those rabbis, those wicked rabbis in Jerusalem, if they cared about the law of Moses like they claimed to, if they cared about it, then they would have stoned Jesus for blasphemy. But they were cowards. They were cowards and they talked the Romans into crucifying him. Oh, they didn't nail him to the cross. They didn't put the cross on his back. They didn't whip him. 
They didn't put the spear in his side, but they stood by and gave consent. As did the people. They were guilty of the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you don't have to actually pull the trigger or plunge the knife to be guilty. You don't actually have to go in there with your vacuum hose and stick it up inside a woman and suck the little baby out piece by piece to be guilty of the murder. The one who gives consent is guilty. The mother is guilty of murder who gives consent. The doctor is guilty. The nurse that stands by. The politician that encourages it. Guilty of murder. And the ones who stand by and say and do nothing. Guilty is charged. Guilty. Paul was guilty of the murder of Stephen. But God was merciful unto him. And Paul humbled himself when he had a face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the resurrected Lord and was commissioned to go and preach by the Lord himself face-to-face. That's what made him an apostle. You know, there are no apostles today. The apostles are the ones who were sent by Jesus Christ face-to-face in his flesh. We've been sent as missionaries by Christ through the preaching and and, and writings of the apostles. So that's what makes an apostle different from a missionary. There are no apostles today. But Paul was the last of the apostles. He was sent directly by the Lord and found great mercy. But it said that when Stephen perished there that day, his face shone like an angel. That light that God's going to give His servants for all eternity. We got, it was a glimpse of it on Stephen's face that day. And those folks there knew that he was righteous. And they knew that what he said was true. And that's why the gospel, through the, through the death of Stephen, the gospel took root there in Jerusalem. And it pricked Paul's conscience from that moment until the day he went to Damascus. He couldn't let it go. There were thousands of conversions there in Jerusalem. And that's what caused the the, uh, persecution to come. And the early Christians were scattered, all Jewish, and went into the Gentile areas and preached the gospel. And there's so much evidence that there were a large number of Jews who believed on Jesus Christ following the death of Stephen that even today the rabbis and the government officials in in, in Israel try to cover that stuff up because they don't want you to know it just like they want to cover up Noah's Ark, just like they want to cover up evidence of the flood, and they want to feed you all this garbage. I was reading something today where a French scientist this past week posted a picture that he claimed was some star. It was a a close-up shot of a star taken from one of these telescopes, Alpha Centauri or something like that. It was really weird looking, you know, kind of red with white pieces and... You thought, man, this is incredible. And then all these people were commenting, oh, wow, look at this and all of this. Well, it came out, and he admitted later that it actually wasn't a star, that it was a piece of chorizo salami. And he was just doing it as a joke. Well, no. You're just doing what y'all always do, and people buy into it. So these folks don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. Anyway, no night, no candle, no sunlight. The Lord God giveth them light. And guess what? They shall reign forever and ever. Not just a thousand years. 
Christ is going to reign a thousand years here on earth to redeem this creation and to fulfill all things related to this creation. And then God's going to wipe it all out and make a new heaven and a new earth. And in that new heaven and that new earth, there'll still be a nation of Israel. There'll still be a church. There'll still be a new Jerusalem. There'll still be the word of God. And there'll still be Tophet, Gehenna, the lake of fire, ignited by the breath of the Lord's mouth. They shall reign forever and ever. We've got to think beyond that, beyond the new heaven and the new earth. We kind of think of it as this one-time event, this static existence. But that's not what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Let's look there. We often quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and sometimes 10. You know, a lot of times we'll memorize those verses as kids that talk about salvation by grace through faith. But we, we, we never... Pause to consider what it's tied to. What it's tied to. And it's tied to what's said right here in Revelation 22. They shall reign forever and ever. You can't separate salvation by grace through faith from they shall reign with Him forever and ever. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, giving us what we don't deserve, which is rule and reign and eternal life. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Faith is simply believing God's Word. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Your faith is a gift of God. I like how my, my dad quoted that passage out of Galatians 2 last night. That's another one of those places you've got to watch out for in these modern Bibles. Subtle changes. And don't think it's done by accident. Paul says, The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. Faith is a gift of God, and we live by his faith. The modern Bibles say the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So of is changed to in. So suddenly, Christ's faithfulness is our faith. Be careful. I don't think these things are insignificant. I think they're subtle and meant to deceive. God's always preserved his word, and he, we live by his faith. His faith. And it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship. He doesn't save us just to sit around. We are His workmanship. He saves us to make, make us His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. A lot of folks like to throw words out there like predestination, sovereignty, depravity, all of these things, and they get mixed up, and everybody says this and that, and people are arguing over semantics and overlooking what's most important. Guys, when you think about predestination and God's role in, uh, in, in the destinies of men, please understand that when the Scriptures speak of predestination, they're always speaking of a predestination to good works, or to be conformed to the image of Christ. Predestination to sanctification. In other words, if you're saved like you claim to be, you've been predestined and ordained by God to bear fruit. So if there's no fruit, then one of two things. God's a liar, but God cannot lie. Or you've never been born again. You need to get saved. You need to get born again. But here, we are God's workmanship and He's ordained those that are saved by grace and faith to bear fruit. Not virtue signaling, but good fruit. 
Okay, we're familiar with those verses. But what are these good works? What are these, this workmanship? We think of it simply in terms of being kind to our neighbor, helping our fellow church member out, being a good father, having devotions with our family. That's all we, we think about in those little limited spheres. It's so far beyond that. Go back a few verses. Let's go back to verse 5. How do we read 8, 9, and 10 and not look at 5, 6, and 7? Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Sitting with Christ, we shall see His face. His servant shall serve Him in His presence. So clear... And so certain that Paul speaks of what is yet future in the present tense. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places and cried Jesus. I just read that. That in what? The ages to come. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. The ages to come. Not the age to come. The ages. So God has purposed a plethora or a plurality of ages for the distant future. We have no idea what it is, what it means. But it's so far beyond the concept of a simple new heaven and a new earth. It's so far beyond the concept of a millennial reign of Christ. And then God just creates everything. No, He's purposed ages to come. Eons to come. Whereby He can continue to show us His grace. And whereby we can continue, world without end, to be His workmanship. That workmanship, that ordination to good works goes so far beyond today and this week in our church fellowship. It extends in the ages to come. And so when we're told here in the last chapter of the Bible that His servants shall serve Him and they shall reign forever and ever, we're talking about ages to come. I don't know what that means. I don't know if in the new heaven and the new earth, man will go out from the earth and go out into these star systems and go out into all of this stuff and populate. I don't know what all that means. But for ages to come, He's going to show us His riches and His grace and His kindness. For we are His workmanship. That starts now. The proof of your salvation starts now and it has repercussions. Not in the next age. Not in the age after that, but in the ages and ages and ages to come. And his servants shall serve him. Guaranteed employment, not for a time, not for a period, not for an age, but for ages and ages to come. Well, that brings us to the end of verse 5. They shall reign forever and ever. Um, another verse, I talked about Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. You can go meditate on this on your own time. Romans 8, 16, and 17. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Christ inherits all things for all ages. We are joint heirs. To reign with Him is to be a joint heir, to be His brother, His sister, and to reign with Him. When I think about this, and I try to bring it back to the here and now, I think about 
something Paul tells Timothy. Not long before Paul pays for his faith in Christ with his own blood. He knows it's coming. He's not afraid. He's not trying to hide out. But he takes time to exhort Timothy before his time on earth is up. And in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy... Verse 8, he writes, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, was raised from the dead. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying. Colon. So this is a faithful saying. This, this is worth remembering. For if we be dead with Him, we shall live with Him. If we die with Christ now, we'll live with Him. We'll see His face. Forever and ever, we'll serve Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we suffer, yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's over in chapter 3, verse 12 of this same epistle. So if we suffer, we're going to reign with Him. And we shall reign forever and ever. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. Be careful. If we believe not, Yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. That's the comfort there. We're warned about denying Christ. We're promised to live with him if we be dead with him, to reign if we suffer. We're warned against denying him, and then we're given comfort. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. We live by his faith, not ours. He is faithful. So when we waver, He is faithful. 1 John 3.20 defines it this way. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. He knows all things. He knows all things about the ages to come. So when our heart condemns us, humble ourselves. He is faithful. He cannot deny Himself. So what does this mean? And we shall reign forever and ever. What does it mean? So what? What about the here and now? What do we do with this? It seems so far out there. It seems like Christ is never going to come. And everything's continuing on and on and on and on. It never stops. The wicked never suffer. They get away with everything. The righteous are punished. The innocent are murdered. The country's going to hell. Everything we work for is being taken away from us by wicked devils and grifters up there in Washington. Where is Christ? When is He coming back? What can we do? The promise seems so distant. Hope deferred, Proverbs says, makes the heart sick. My heart's sick a lot. Just like Lot was vexed in the city of Sodom. So what? What do we do? Jesus said, occupy until I come. Occupy. Turn to Galatians 6, 9. Galatians 6, 9. Jesus told a few of the churches there in Revelation 2 and 3, hold fast, hold fast 
Galatians 6.9 says it this way, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season, season we shall reap if we faint. It's distant, but it's been declared. It's certain. Let's not be weary in well-doing. Because we're going to be well-doing for all of eternity. His servant shall serve Him. We need as much practice as we can get now. We need to get ready for all eternity. And for comfort, Paul says this in Romans 2. I think there's a phrase here that is worth emphasizing. God's talking about the moral man, how inexcusable he is. He claims to be one thing and does another. He rebukes everybody else that does the same thing. He's talking all about these virtue signalers out here today. You know, the ones that whine about racism who are more racist than anybody in the history of the world. The ones who whine about oppression and only want to oppress those not like them. Thou art inexcusable, old man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. God's not a respecter of persons. You're not going to get away with it with God. Against them which commit such things. And then it goes on to say, And do you think, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Do you really think you'll escape His judgment? I think some of these fools in Washington do. I think they really do. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. God's goodness is never to make us rich or to make us comfortable. It's to lead us to repentance. It's God's goodness that reveals these details of our future home. It should lead us to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart... Treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. The sinner needs mercy from God, not justice. Mercy. But then look in verse 7. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, to them eternal life. If you want to sum up what it is to be sanctified of the Spirit, what's been foreordained to those who are justified by the blood of Christ, this is a good way to sum it up. Patient continuance in well-doing. The psalmist said it this way, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. So what do we do now with regard to something that seems so far away? Patient continuance. Our job isn't to start a revolution. It's not to take the country back. It's not to make America great again. It's patient continuance and well-doing as we wait for eternal life. Now, that, mean we, that doesn't mean we keep our mouth shut. That doesn't mean we hide in fear. God's prophets are models of patient continuance and well-doing. They saw the promises. They saw these things with their own eyes promised to the faithful of God and they wrote them down and they lived in patient continuance. They didn't keep their mouth shut though. They weren't afraid to point a finger in the face of a king and tell him 
that he was wicked as hell and better repent before God struck him dead. Oh, we don't need to keep our mouth shut. But let's don't get wrapped up in all this stuff. Oh, we, we, we just need to, we got to go vote in this election and we got to do that. And we, we'll take the Congress back. There'll be a red wave and we're going to, come on. Don't put your hope in that stuff. Patient continuance and well-doing is eternal life. These great promises, this great detail ought to make us be ashamed of our lukewarmness like they were meant to make Israel ashamed. They ought to have a strength in our hands in these dark times. And they ought to make us content to patiently continue in well-doing until these things come to pass. For they are certain. Let's don't make the mistake of the scoffers in the world who says, man, all this stuff keeps happening. Jesus is never going to come back. Oh, He is. And when He does, it will happen shortly and quickly. <coughs> Thus ends... The things which shall be hereafter. Remember, John was told to write down three things. The things he had seen. Christ Jesus in his glorified body as the high priest of the church. The things which are the letters to the seven churches, the church age. And the things which shall be hereafter. That started all the way back in chapter 4 verse 1. The things which shall be hereafter. The third part of the outline of the book. And we've come to the end. Revelation chapter 22 verse 5. Thus ends the things which shall be hereafter. And suddenly we find ourselves back on the Isle of Patmos. Suddenly we find ourselves in the epilogue of the book. Back to Patmos. Now we hadn't been there since I think it was February 10th of 2013 when we started talking about the things which are Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus right. And now we've gone through all of that and we're back to the Isle of Patmos. I want to end today just by a quick review of the book. We followed the outline given to John in Revelation 119, the theme of the book. It'll sort out all of these things that people get confused about. The things which thou hast seen, chapter 1. John's vision of the glorified Christ. Chapter, or, or, or the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the church age. If you remember, Ephesus, the backslidden church. A prophetic foreview of the apostolic period up to about the death of John. Smyrna, the persecuted church. Fulfilled in the persecutions under the Roman emperors up to A.D. 313. Pergamus, the tolerant church, fulfilled in Constantine's Edict of Milan, all the way up to 607, the proclamation of Boniface III as the universal bishop of the church. That toleration of that spirit of Nicolaitanism that Christ hates. Thyatira, the unrepentant church, fulfilled from AD 607, AD 1500, the Dark Ages under Roman Catholic dominance. Christ still had a remnant. Sardis, the dead church, the Protestant Reformation. Make no mistake, a lot of good things came out of the Protestant Reformation, but the end of its testimony was deadness. It's deadness. A.D. 1500 to 1700. Philadelphia, the remnant church, 
Revival and missionary movements. A.D. 1700 through 1900. And then Laodicea. Leo, people. Decea, rights. The lukewarm church. The church of civil rights. That's what we are today. The 20th century into the rapture. The churches. Literal churches in John's time. Types of churches that exist at all times. Personal warnings. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And now we can look back in this period of history and see that it was the entire church age prophesied. Fell into place just like that. Then we get to the things which shall be hereafter. The third and final point on the outline. Revelation 4.1 to here, 22 verse 5. Hereafter, hereafter what? Following the church age. So we've, got, we've talked about the rapture. Chapter 4, verse 1. Heaven's throne room. The church is in heaven. Chapter 4 and 5. And then we get into the tribulation period. Chapter 6 through the end of 18. Daniel, it's also called Daniel's 70 week, 70th week or the time of Jacob's trouble. We talked about all of that. It includes the seven seal judgments. The seventh seal is the seventh trumpet or the seven trumpet judgments. We see the seven major characters of the tribulation period. Israel, Satan, the Messiah, Michael, the archangel, the 144,000 witnesses, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. We saw the seventh trumpet, which is the seven vile judgments. The destruction of the world system. Chapters 17 and 18. It's religious element, chapter 17, and it's commercial element. This world system is going to fall. The second coming of Christ, Revelation 19. This is all the things which shall be hereafter. The great battle of Armageddon, Revelation 19. The destruction of Satan in chapter 20. Of course, encapsulated within verses 6 and 7 are the millennial reign of Christ as described in Isaiah 11, Zechariah 14. The great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And then the home of the saints, the new heaven and the new earth, and then that new Jerusalem that transcends this creation, the millennium, into the new heavens and the new earth. And bang, here we are. Chapter 22. We're going to come back and we're going to see that in this epilogue, appropriately placed right here at the end of the Bible, doesn't just happen to be there. Here at the end, God closes His special revelation to man. The canon is closed. And in this closing, not just on the book of Revelation, but on the entirety of Scripture, we're going to see one last exhortation, one final exhortation. It's the last one. We better listen to it. We're going to see a last invitation. One final invitation. It's the last one. We're going to hear one last warning. And it's a serious one. It's the last warning in the Bible. Just as we ought to pay close attention what they call the law of the first mention. The first time something is mentioned in Scripture, we ought to pay attention to it. Because it sheds light on what it means every time thereafter. If that is, we believe that the Holy Spirit is the author and He put it all together just like He wanted it. But we also ought to pay attention to the last mention. A last warning. A serious one. We also have one last promise. A last promise. A final prayer. The last prayer of the whole Bible. 
and then one last blessing. And so I'd like to look at each of those in time, and then we'll end this study. So um, praise God. Back on the Isle of Patmos. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we're grateful for this time in your word. We're, we're grateful that we are approaching the end of this long journey that began long ago in January of 2013. Father, we haven't been on the Isle of Patmos with John since February of that year. And now we're back. We're not done, but we're back. And we're back to hear last words you would have for us in your Bible. So we're thankful for this journey that this so far. We're thankful for all the promises and the details and the, and the, the hopes and the glories and the, and the um, consummations that are written for us. So we ask, Lord, that you would make us ashamed of our lukewarmness, that you would strengthen our hands, Lord, and that you would help us in patient continuance and well-doing to await the fulfillment of these things. For Lord, those of us who have been justified by grace through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, who have been washed from our sins in His own blood, accepted by virtue of His resurrection, we have been predestined, foreordained to be conformed to that image and to bring forth good fruit because we live by the faith of the Son of God. So Lord, bear fruit in us even in these dark days. Bear fruit in us here in our communities, within our own church body, in our homes, Lord, in our uh, own Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth, Lord. Bear fruit in us. Bear fruit in your saints in these last days that we might go out strong and not with a whimper. Yes, the church is lukewarm. Yes, we're in Laodicea. Yes, there's many even today behind the pulpit who care more about many things than they care about Christ and His Word. Yes, Lord, but you say, even to that church, this church, this such a church as we are here in America, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Oh, that's such a precious promise in these dark days. May we open that door for you in our lives. May we sit with you and sup with you and learn with you. Even as the world perishes around us. And when the day comes that we are called to take a stand that will cost us far more than our popularity or our prosperity. May we do it with the same confidence that Paul did when he wrote to Timothy. We're so thankful, Lord, that if we believe not, you abide faithful, you cannot deny yourself. We're so thankful that your servants will serve you for all eternity and that one day we will see your face and you'll give us light and it'll go with us and we will reign with you forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, that to him that overcometh, even to the lukewarm Laodicean church, you said this, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Father, bless the food we're about to eat in our fellowship, and we acknowledge you, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.